Good morning, everybody. Glad to be with you. Um, one thing I think that we could probably all relate to would be um, saying things we regret when we're in a moment of anger. I had a, a youth pastor who lived at my house for a while when I was in high school, which was really cool, but I remember um, one uh, time he, he got up at 7 and got angry at us because we were making too much noise and uh, stormed out. He, he you know, kind of uh, got really upset with us and, and what do you think you're doing being loud at 7 o'clock and then left and went to, to work and uh, shortly thereafter came back very embarrassed because it was actually 7 p.m., not 7 a.m. He'd just taken a nap and forgotten what time it was. So in, in all of our lives, there's times when we, when we kind of lose it and, you know, when we're angry and, and say things we regret, whether it's to your family, you know, your spouse, your kids, your parents, friends, sometimes, you know, it ends up hurting someone who has nothing to do with the fact that you're angry and has no idea that you're, why you're angry or wasn't there for when you got angry. And uh, it can be really embarrassing. And sometimes it's, you know, kind of a mild thing. You get over it real quick. And other times it can be a, a long, uh, a devastating thing to a relationship. A anger can be dangerous to relationships. Um, it, it can be relationally dangerous. Anger could be physically dangerous. You know, sometimes people lash out uh, physically when they're angry. Uh, but the Bible also teaches us another type of danger that occurs when, when we're angry, and that would be spiritual danger. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote this in a letter to Jesus' followers in Ephesus, and uh, he said this, um, and that is not how you spell Ephesians, with one F? No. Uh, with an F? That's PH is what it's supposed to be. But, uh, he, uh, but he says to them, do not let the sun go down in your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. And so what he's saying is that um, well, We're in this series called The Devil's Playbook And we're talking about how the devil has different strategies On how to separate us from God And make us miserable And one of his strategies uh, Is to take advantage of us when, uh, Under circum circumstances When we are angry This word uh, uh, Opportunity, it's a Greek word Originally, and it's topos Topos, T-O-P-O-S And it, it can be translated to opportunity It can also be like a foothold, don't give the the devil a foothold. One commentator says to think of it as, as a space. This word can also be translated space or like area. Like, like if, if uh, you're angry under the wrong, in the wrong way, uh, if you mishandle your anger, you're actually like giving a space to the devil to come in and set up uh, a, sort of a base of operations. You're giving an, an area for him to operate in your life. Um, so that's something that we should definitely be uh, careful about because it can be anger can be spiritually uh, dangerous. So um, we understand that it can be dangerous in these different ways. It can be relationally dangerous. It can be physically dangerous. It can be spiritually relation, uh, dangerous. But is is anger a sin? Is, is anger? If you're feeling anger, are are you in the act of sinning? Well. Um, Jesus himself uh, said uh, to some people listening to him during his Sermon on the Mount, he said, I say to, any, uh, to, say, that, say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment. That, that makes it sound like it, that's a sin when you're, if you're angry at someone. The Apostle Paul in three different letters talks about anger in a similar way. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Um, he says in his letter to the Colossians, he says, But now put off all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. He writes in a letter to his protege, Timothy, he says to him, So I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute. So it kind of sounds like, according to the Bible, that, that 
when you're angry, when you're angry, you are you're sinning. That it's sinful to do that. But that's that's kind of a concerning thing, especially because something I, I shared with I shared here a few months ago, and that's the idea uh, that oftentimes when you believe you're not supposed to feel a certain way, it can lead to psychological disorders. For example, obsessive compulsive disorder. I shared uh, one one story about a woman who was dealing with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, and she had these horrible thoughts that something horrible was going to happen to her baby, and so she felt compelled every night to spend like an hour and a half or two hours checking all the cables in the room to make sure the baby was safe before she could feel comfortable enough to go to bed. And it was driving her nuts. She went and saw her psychologist. And normally the way you treat obsessive compulsive disorder is you expose someone to the thing they're afraid of. So maybe the the therapist would have this woman uh, take an unplugged cord, electrical cord, and touch it to her baby, which to this woman would probably be horrifying. And you have to do something like that until you get over the fear and it no longer bothers you anymore. But um, what, what, what this therapist realized is that oftentimes, like I, like I said, if, if, you, if you believe you're not supposed to feel a certain way, it can cause big anxiety disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder. So she, at, with talking with this woman, the, the psychologist found out that she was feeling a lot of anger towards her husband, but felt like it was wrong for her to feel that way. Just because of the environment she had been raised in, um, she kind of naturally picked up that message, whether her parents intended to pass it on or not. So um, the, the, the psychologist had this woman go and talk caringly and respectfully with her husband about how she was feeling, and they worked through the conflict, and what's incredible is that the obsessive-compulsive disorder was completely gone once she had done that. So um, saying that you shouldn't feel a certain way can certainly be uh, very poisonous and, and dangerous, um, and yet the Bible's talking about not being angry, so how do we you know, reconcile those two things. Well, sometimes when we come to a verse in the Bible that's confusing, the way that we uh, interpret the Bible, the way that we interpret Scripture is with Scripture. So when you find something kind of confusing, oftentimes you can find another Scripture that sheds light on what you're reading and helps you to make more sense of it. So I want to look at a, a uh, story from the life of Jesus that's going to help us understand these commands about anger a little bit better. So it's, it comes from the life of Jesus. He's in uh, the synagogue, which is the place of, of worship and um, scripture reading and prayer for the Jewish people, and on the Sabbath they would go, to, go there together and hear the religious leaders read the scripture. So Jesus is there. Um, we'll pick up in Mark chapter 3 where this happens. Then Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. His hand was, was shriveled, it was paralyzed, and this was, I mean, not only, I mean, in today's day and age, you know, you could probably get work in that, in that, with that sort of problem, but back then, it would probably be a lot harder, and you have a lot of people looking down on you because of that. A lot of people would assume this man must have done something to deserve this, like he had sinned, or his parents had sinned, and this was God's punishment, so people were probably looking down on this guy. This guy was miserable because not only had, did he have this physical ailment, but he probably had a lot of other people disliking him as well. Um, so, they watched Jesus closely, meaning the religious leaders, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. The, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they just wanted to find a reason to get rid of Jesus. So they were, they were watching him very closely. So Jesus says, uh, said to the man with a withered hand, stand up among all these people. I mean, that's got to be uncomfortable. I mean, you can imagine how you'd feel if 
you were in this situation and I told you to stand up imagine you know a long time ago when you're want nobody to notice you and and just want people probably to like you and, and feel very self-conscious about the way that you look and the way that your body is this is probably really uncomfortable for this guy but Jesus has him stand up um, and he, he says to the rest of them he says is it lawful um, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or is it lawful to do evil is it lawful to save a life or to uh, destroy it now the the jews of course would would remember as you probably do some of you most of you probably do that in the old testament jim just talked about this in a series we did the last series we did way of life uh, god commanded the people of israel to rest to not work on the sabbath and this was to promote good this was for their benefit it was for their uh, rest um, and so they, they understood that, but the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, the teachers, they, um, they made up their own rules in addition to the rules that God gave them. So they said, you should not even heal somebody on the Sabbath unless it's like a life or death situation. Unless they're going to die, don't even heal them. In fact, there was one rabbi named Rabbi Shammai who was so strict on this, he said, you shouldn't even visit a sick person or pray for a sick person on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is supposed to be about joy. And if you're going to be around a sick person, there's good, that, that's going to take away all of your joy. So what's the point of doing that? So Jesus is, what is their response to what Jesus asked them? Is it, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Um, they were silent. They had no response. They didn't know how to answer. Now, this is the important part. After looking around at them in anger, Jesus felt anger. He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out and his hand was restored so the pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the herodians people who were in support of the the roman ruler uh, herod the tetrarch uh, as to, uh, to they went out and plotted with them as to how they could assassinate uh, jesus so did these people really care about jesus working on the sabbath it doesn't seem like it because what work did Jesus really do? All he did was say something. He didn't get out ointment or do some sort of procedure. He just did what any other Jewish person would do at the time, which was speak. They, they were just concerned with getting rid of Jesus, getting him killed, looking for any reason to have him destroyed. And they didn't even care about the fact that a man who had lived in incredible suffering and probably some type of isolation and, and loneliness had just been miraculously healed and relieved of his suffering and misery. They weren't concerned about that at all, and Jesus was angry about it, and rightfully so. He was grieved and angry because of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus was angry, and yet Jesus was someone who never sinned. So what we learn from this story is that there is a way to be angry without sinning and in fact in the in the what paul said to the ephesians uh the statement prior to when he talks about not letting the sin go down on your anger he says this he says he says as much he says be angry and yet do not sin be angry and yet do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity so now it's getting kind of confused because we're hearing you know be angry 
but don't be angry, and Jesus got angry, so how do we make sense of all this different information that we've gathered this far? Well, first, let's, let's just talk about what anger is for a second. Anger is an emotion that you feel when you believe an injustice has occurred. Something, somebody did something wrong, unfair, unjust, evil. Uh, something is not as it should be. When you believe that that has happened, you naturally feel anger. Uh, if, if somebody cuts you off in, in freeway and you believe it's wrong for them to do that, you will naturally feel angry. If you don't believe it's wrong, you won't feel that way. If someone steals your phone and you believe that's wrong, you'll feel angry. If they steal your phone and you feel like you deserved it, I don't know why you, you would feel that way, but maybe you do, you're not going to feel angry. You'd feel something like guilt instead or uh, shame or something. But anger is just the emotion that we feel when we believe that we have done, or that somebody has done something wrong, things are not uh, as they should be, some sort of injustice has been committed. So, um, if you believe that something wrong has occurred, you should expect to feel angry. Um, Jesus was angry at the Pharisees. So I think what, what we can what we can glean from all this different information is it's not so much the initial emotional response we feel towards injustice. What matters to God is what we do when we are feeling those feelings of anger. In fact, I think God designed us to feel angry when we believe something has been wrong. Because, for one thing, it's, it's like, he, like him. He experiences anger when he sees something that's wrong. And anger, it can be a good thing because it motivates us to do something about the injustice that we see. Imagine what it would be like if people saw child abuse and felt nothing about it. There would be no motivation to change something about what they were seeing in the world. Uh, here's an example. Uh, in 1980, a girl named Carrie was walking from her softball pictures being taken to go to church, to go to a carnival, where she's going to win some prizes, have some fun with some friends. When she was walking in the bike path, when a car swerved into the bike path, hit her, sent her flying 125 feet, and uh, she was rushed to the hospital. The car drove off. Um, it was a hit and run. She was rushed to the hospital where uh, her mom uh, came and found her and found out that she hadn't made it, and her, uh, her, her daughter hadn't made it. And she found out how bad it was when she asked if her daughter's organs could be donated, and they said they're too damaged for us to even be able to donate them. So as you can imagine, her mom, well, you probably can't imagine unless you've been through that, how horrible that would be. As she was uh, driving uh, at, a, at a later time, she drove past that spot where her child had been hit, and there was police officers standing there. And so she, she parked and got out and talked to them to learn some more about what happened and found out that the person who had hit her was driving under the influence. Not only that, he was out on bail from an earlier time uh, that he was, uh, had a hit and run while he was under the influence. And this was his fifth time in four years this had happened. So you can imagine she, she felt extremely angry and helpless and lost. And so what did she do? She founded an organization you might be familiar with called MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And she went around um, raising awareness about what was going on. And there was the, the legislation was not designed to do anything to stop this. When she talked to those police officers, she asked, how long is this guy going to spend in prison for what he did, for hitting my daughter and killing her? And they said, lady, you'll be lucky if, if, she, if he sees jail time for this. 
so she went around trying to change the legislative system. And since 1980, the number of alcoholic-related uh, traffic fatalities has gone from 30,000 to, in 20, uh, two years ago, it was around 13,000. So it's gone down uh, a huge, huge way. So we see that anger can actually motivate us to make a difference about the injustices that we see in our world. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful. And Paul tells us to be careful when he tells us to not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, a lot of people think that means that you need to stop being feeling angry by the end of the day, which is unfortunate if you get angry one second before the sun goes down. So um, what exactly is he getting at? Is, is, so some people some people say, you know, don't go to bed angry. Like, the, the, in, in a marriage, make sure that you don't go to bed angry. Um, I, I, I don't think, okay, I know I'm not married, but just wait for me to make my point. Um, I don't think that that's uh, always the best choice, and it's not always helpful. And let me tell you why. Listen to someone who's smarter than me, okay? Um, a, a woman named Shanti Feldman uh, wrote a book called The Surprising Secrets of Highly Happy Marriages. And in it, she surveyed hundreds of couples and interviewed hundreds of couples and um, put together the data that she found and came to some conclusions. And uh, she wanted to know the difference between the couples that said, where, where both said, yes, we are very happy, and the difference between them um, and the couples that said that either one of them said they were happy and one of them didn't, or both of them said that they were unhappy. She wanted to know, what, what's the difference? What are the factors, and what can we learn from that? And one of the chapters she has is actually called Go to Bed Mad. And she says, um, most, most of the, the, the couples where both of them say that they're happy in this marriage— uh, they say that they tell other people, you shouldn't go to bed mad. And it's something they try to live by, and yet oftentimes it doesn't always work out that way. They end up going to bed mad. But what they find when they wake up in the morning is they feel uh, much more at ease and um, able to talk about their, uh, their problems in a calm way. And in fact, sometimes they wake up and wonder why they were even upset about it in the first place. And so they're able to deal with their, co their conflict in a very productive sort of way. But what, what she found was the difference between the happy couples and the unhappy couples, the difference between the happy couples was, was when they went to bed angry, when the happy couples went to bed angry, only 5% of them in the morning uh, ignored the conflict, didn't resolve the conflict. So 95% of the, the, the happy couples who went to bed angry, they dealt with the conflict in the morning. But 41%, over eight times as many, of the unhappy couples just didn't address the conflict in the morning. They just ignored it, pretend it didn't exist. And so um, Shanti writes this in her book. She says, instead of sticking to a rule about anger having to be resolved before a given time of night, the rule uh, the happy couples stuck to was to not let stuff build up that would ultimately make them unhappy with each other. And so I think what, what Paul is talking about when he's saying don't let the sun go down in the anger, he's not saying, you know, if you get angry one second before the sun goes down, you're in a whole lot of trouble. I think he's just trying to encourage us to, to, to deal with our anger in a timely manner. When you let it go on and on, when you ignore it, when you build it up, when you don't deal with it in a healthy way, when you lash out when you're angry, 
That gives the devil an opportunity. That opens the door to the devil. It invites him inside, and he wants to destroy your relationships because he knows that your well-being is greatly, powerfully connected to your relationships. You can have, you know, a million dollars, and if you're arguing with someone, you're not feeling very happy. But if you don't have a whole lot of money, but you are just experiencing joy with a, a, your partner or your friend or whatever, it doesn't, the circumstances don't matter so much. So he would love, he, 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 would, he loves to watch and wait for the moment when you don't handle your anger in a proper, proper way. When you're angry and you let it cause you to sin, or when you um, don't deal with your anger in a timely way. So um, our, our theme verse for this series has been James 4, 7, Submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Um, he, he, like, like I said, he's got plans, and how you resist him depends on the plans that he's running. Last week we talked about how one of his plans is to lie to you and make the lies look like truth and make you not realize that he's lying. Um, and the way that we resist him when he's running that plan, when he's running that play, is to stay connected to the source of truth. Stay connected to Jesus. Pray. Read your Bible. Communicate with God. Surround yourself with other people who are doing the same sort of thing. But today we're talking about how the devil's looking for the opportunity when you've let the sun go down in your anger, when you've let your anger cause you to sin. How do we resist that? What does it look like to resist in those sorts of situations? Well, let's take a look at some, um, some biblical answers. Uh, one thing that's important um, is to try and de-escalate situations, all right? When, when um, somebody else is angry or you're angry, we're not really thinking clearly and logically. Usually just our base instinct is, I want that to make that person feel the way that they made me feel. They made me hurt, so now I want to hurt. It's not about how, how do we fix this problem, how do we repair our relationship. So... The more we can de-escalate, the more we're in a logical state of mind and are willing to take steps towards uh, uh, reconstructing or repairing our relationship. So well, in, in the book of Proverbs, we're given um, this uh, statement, this statement of wisdom about how to uh, de-escalate. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If, if you want to escalate, uh, speak harshly to someone. Raise your voice, insult them, tell them they're acting like their mother. But if you want to de-escalate a situation, speak gently to them. Speak uh, kindly. Bring your tone of voice down. Don't, don't insult. Don't talk about their parents. It may be true what you have to say, but just because it's true doesn't mean that it's going to de-escalate and bring peace to the situation. Um, another helpful verse is uh, in the, the book of James, written by Jesus' little brother James, and it says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to listen, quick to listen, quick, quick, quick to listen, not quick to speak, slow to anger, and slow to speak. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, listening doesn't mean hearing what they're saying so you can formulate a way to destroy their argument that they're making, okay? That's not what listening. L l listening is not not talking while they're talking. Listening is 
hearing what they're saying and putting yourself in their shoes and trying to understand what it would be like if you were going through what they were going through. And then trying to see if you've properly understood the thoughts and the feelings they're experiencing. So asking, wow, it sounds like you're feeling, would you, would you say you're feeling pretty angry with me? It's hard to ask that question. It's really, it kind of leaves you vulnerable. Or, you know, you maybe you're asking, are you, you feel disappointed right now? Do you feel disappointed in me? Is it, is it hopelessness you're feeling? Or it sounds like you feel like um, you're, you're thinking that this relationship isn't working out. Is, is that what you're thinking? Are you thinking that there's, there's no hope? Or, you know, try and get to the source of the, the feelings that they're feeling and the thoughts that they're thinking. And when that happens, people actually, they start to feel a sense of relief and it, and it de-escalates the situation. And here's a really hard thing to do is, is find the truth in what the other person is saying. Uh, a psychologist named Dr. David Burns calls this the disarming technique. Um, if you can, if they have some sort of criticism, this is so hard to do and it takes practice and God help us, we don't want to do it, but finding the truth in someone else's criticism, saying, you know what, I have been a lot, a late a lot lately, or yes, you know, you're right, I, I haven't been paying as much attention to you uh, as I used to, or I haven't been spending enough time or making enough time, or, you know, wh whatever it is. Hear what they're, what, what the criticism, and, and try and find some kind of truth in it, and, and when you can admit that, oh my gosh, it will melt their heart. It is powerful. So we, we try and understand thoughts and feelings. That's a part of listening, um, and, and then you try and find the truth in what they're saying. Complimenting them helps them to calm down once you've done these other things, once you've Try to understand the thoughts and feelings, and once you've looked for the truth, when you can say, you know what, um, it's, it's painful for me to hear you say that, because I care so much about you. You've been there for me so much, it hurts to hear that I haven't been there for you recently, and you're the type of person I, you know, I really want to make you happy because of how much I love you and care about you. Those sorts of things go a whole, a huge way towards de-escalating. And once you've done all those things, then you can get to the point where you can say, uh, you know, I've been feeling sort of angry myself, and here's why. We want to, as Stephen Covey put it in um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, we want to seek to understand before being understood. And then we can let ourselves be understood and, and ask them, you know, how do you feel about what I said? You know, how, how did that affect you? I, I want to hear more about what you have to say. Those are powerful ways to listen, to be slow to speak, to be slow to anger, and to, to speak gently and turn away wrath. De-escalate so we don't make them more angry, which makes us more angry, which makes them more angry, and it just ricochets and snowballs out of control and leaves this whole space for the devil co to come in and make things even more horrible. So, but what, what about those situations where anger is not even the right word? We're past anger. We're at, we're at rage. We're at deep bitterness. We're at, uh, like, something that's just affecting you for your whole life. You've been, you've been carrying this hurt for a long time, and it's just out of control. It is, it is so painful, and, and you don't want to say that what they did was okay. You don't feel like they deserve any respect because of the way that they abused you. You don't want to ever think about that person again, even though you can't really seem to stop doing it because of how much anger you have inside of you. What if it's beyond little, you know, being nice and listening to someone and complimenting and understanding feelings? What if this is a deep, deep wound that, that's just 
pouring anger out of it. What do you do about those sorts of situations? Well, let me tell you uh, about the life of someone named Immaculate Ilabagiza. Immaculate lived uh, through the Rwandan genocide, which, as you may recall, was when the Hutus uh, did what they could to exterminate the Tutsis in Rwanda. And Rwanda, I believe, is the size of, like, Rhode Island. And yet, there, in, in the span of 100 days, there was somewhere between 500,000 and some people say 2 million people killed in brutal ways, usually with machetes and spears. It was, it was absolutely awful and disgusting. The Hutus said that they should kill even the infants of the Tutsis because um, they called the Tutsis cockroaches, and they said, you know, a child of a cockroach is still a cockroach. And whenever anybody starts... Uh, the only way you can really convince somebody to exterminate another human being is to think of them as less than human. So whenever somebody starts referring to something that's human as less than human, like a cockroach, you know you're really on your way towards something ugly and horrible. Now, when this started, Immaculate, uh, her father told her to go and hide at a, a pastor's house. And this pastor was actually a Hutu, and Immaculate was a Tutsi, so um, fortunately they knew this pastor and knew he was... Um, friendly with uh, Tutsis. So she, he, she went to his house and she uh, was, he took her and put her in his bathroom and hid her in there. But she wasn't the only one who came to that house to look for a place to hide. She was in this bathroom with seven other women and children and this bathroom was four feet by three feet. And they had to take turns um, standing. They had the kids sitting on top of them. They were, this, the eight of them were in this four-foot-by-three-foot room for 90 days they lived like that. While they heard all around them all this murdering and horrible things going on outside of the house, some neighbors had seen these women go inside of this, uh, this house but never come out. So they knew something was up, so this mob of like 100 Hutus came and surrounded the place, and they made their way in, and they were searching everywhere for these missing uh, women, and they were looking through the attic, looking all over the place, under the beds, and uh, Immaculate heard the voice of someone she knew from childhood, a, childhood uh, a child she had played with growing up. She heard this guy say, I've killed 399 cockroaches, I want Immaculate to be number 400. And at a certain point, they've looked all over the house, and the Hutus are standing in front of the bathroom door talking to the pastor. And what's really horrible is if they, what, what they would do if somebody was hiding Tutsis is they would force the person who was hiding them to kill the people they were hiding and then kill that person themselves. So the pastor was in a lot of danger himself. And the Hutus say to the pastor, we trust you. You're one of us. And they leave. And they never check the bathroom. So... During this time, as you can imagine, Immaculate is getting full of hatred and anger. And she was thinking, if I had a gun, I would go out there and I would shoot those people myself. And she was a Christian, though, and so she would be praying and she'd be trying to pray the Lord's Prayer. And when she got to the part about forgive those who have sinned against me, she couldn't get the words to form on her lips. She didn't, she didn't want those people to be forgiven. She wanted them to be punished because of the disgusting, evil, horrible, hateful things they had done. And so all she could do was pray, God, help me to forgive them. Because we're commanded in the Bible to forgive. 
One time, Jesus' disciple Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, meaning keep forgiving as many times as you have to. And Immaculate knew this, so she called out to God, help me to forgive. And when she did that, she said she saw a vision of Jesus hanging on the cross, crying out to God about the people who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And when she saw that, she suddenly realized these people who are committing these horrible crimes, they are God's creations. They are like children of God who have gone astray. And she started to see them the way that, that God saw them, the way that Jesus saw them. And so she prayed that same prayer Jesus did. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And she said the moment she did that, the hatred drained away, and she was filled with God's love. And she realized that forgiveness is a, it can be a miraculously healing experience. Forgiveness is the way to heal the hurts you don't deserve. And so she, she escaped this place. Um, she lived. She made it through. The only member of her family who had survived all this was her older brother. Her, the rest of her family had been murdered in horrible ways. She had found out that one of her brothers, who had been decapitated, had, had told the people who were going to kill him that he forgave them before, um, before he was killed. And she continued in this path of forgiving because she realized it was the only way to heal. And it was not just a one-moment kind of thing. She had to keep doing it, um, even though there was that sort of miraculous moment. And, and one time, a government official came to her and said that she had the opportunity to meet the man who led the mob that killed her parents. This man was in prison, and she took him up on the offer, and she went to the prison, and she saw this guy, a guy that she had known, um, who was a well, father of some kids that she used to play with. He used to be a well-to-do businessman, but now he was on the ground, and he was ragged, and he was gaunt, and he was covered in, in sores, the result of harboring hatred inside of himself. And she bent down and said to him, I forgive you. She whispered it in, in her ear, and as he expressed his, his gratitude for that, she said she felt once again the healing go through her, the healing power go through her. And the jail guard who was there said, I brought this man out so that you could spit on him. Why would you forgive him? And she said to him, because hatred has taken everything I ever loved from me. Forgiveness is all I have left to offer. She said, I turned and walked out of that prison free of anger and hatred, and I have lived as a free woman ever since. We're going to have the band come back up now. Staying angry, not let, or letting the sun go down on your anger, nursing resentment and bitterness, over time, if it gets magnified and grows and grows and grows and you do not control it, can result in genocide. It's no wonder that Paul says, that it gives the devil an opportunity. He sets up shop. And things go way, way beyond what you could imagine. Forgiveness, though, forgiving, forgiving others, is a devastating blow to the devil's plans. 
Forgiving others is a devastating blow to the others, to, to the devil's plans. He wants us, he wants us to fight other people rather than himself. Because if we fight other people, it means we won't be resisting him. And as we saw before, when we resist him, he has to flee. So he'd rather us fight someone else than fight him, so he has to flee. He wants to stay under the radar and destroy our relationships all the while we're thinking it's someone else's fault rather than the one who set up shop. When Jesus talks about forgiveness in the Bible, he uses the metaphor of canceling a debt. When somebody hurts you, when somebody wrongs you and you don't deserve it, I mean, they, they owe you. They deserve to be punished. They deserve to face the consequences of their action. That's, that's really what's fair. That's what's just. But canceling a debt means I'm not going to punish you anymore. I'm not going to make you pay. I'm not going to get you back. I'm not going to get revenge. I'm sacrificing my right to revenge. And canceling a debt... Forgiving someone doesn't mean what they did was okay. Because you cannot cancel a debt that doesn't exist. By canceling someone's debt, you're saying there is one, which means they did something wrong. You're saying, no, what you did was horrible. But I'm canceling the debt. I'm not going to get revenge. I'm not going to make you pay. I'm going to leave it up to God. Because he's a much better judge than I am. And you're doing yourself a favor, as, as Lewis Smead said, when you forgive someone, you set a prisoner free only to realize that the prisoner was you. Forgiveness heals the hurts we don't deserve. And we forgive because Jesus forgave us. We forgive out of gratitude for his forgiveness of us. And so we should all take a moment to ask together, God, is there someone I need to forgive? And my guess is if there is, you've already been thinking about that person for a while this morning while I've been talking. Maybe not. Maybe you need, you need to ask, but now would be the moment to start the process of forgiving. And, and forgiveness stories are very different, you know? Sometimes there is a miraculous, instantaneous moment when you're, you're healed. Sometimes it's a long process, and it starts with something small, like, God, just do something about that person. Whatever it is you want to do, I don't care. And then it turns into, God, do something good for that person. And then you know you're on the right track when you can start saying, God, would you bless that person? Maybe it's your step today is just praying, God, like, like Immaculate said, help me forgive that person. I don't know how to do it. Help me to do it. And sometimes you have to keep saying, God, I forgive that person. God, I canceled their debt. God, I'm not going to get revenge on them. God, I'm not going to pay them back. Sometimes it's a continual thing. Sometimes you find peace, and later it kind of springs up again. You continue the process of forgiving. But it's different for everyone. But it's important because it heals the hurts that you don't deserve and it deals a devastating blow to the enemy's plan. Now, we got a few more weeks left in this series, but next week we're going to take a break, and I'm excited about next week's break. 
and I hope you'll be here because we have some amazing speakers. We have Chuck and Sally Cook who are going to come speak to us. They are the founders of Hope Refuge, uh, Olive Crest Hope Refuge it's called now, which um, is an organization which helps rehabilitate girls ages 11 through 17 who have survived sex trafficking. They're amazing people, amazing speakers, so make sure you're here for that, and we'll pick up with this series the following week. Let me... Uh, pray for you. God, I know there's some hurting hearts in here right now. There's some bitterness, there's some anger, whether it's small or huge, but God, you are a God who is a healer, and you want these people to be free from the hurt that they have not deserved. So help them to forgive. God, I pray you would slam the door on the devil. You would remove him from people's lives where he's hurting them. You would surround people with your angels to protect them from those sorts of things and that they would choose to forgive. You would guide them in the process of forgiveness. You would guide them in the path of forgiveness and help them to continue to follow you and let them know how incredible and deep your love is for them and for the person who has hurt them. I ask for a deep healing work to happen in the hearts of all who are here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.